I've got a title here, Christ the Disturber of the Peace, question mark. Is Jesus the Disturber of the Peace? I came not to bring peace. You know, some peace, peace is kind of a, we kind of crave peace, don't we? Just want a bit of peace and quiet. One of our favorite books as parents with our children was um, Five Minutes Peace. The story of an elephant who's just a mom and she just can't get away from the kids. They pester her. Eventually she retreats to the bathroom. She sinks into the bath. Five minutes peace. Doors close and within two minutes they're all in the bath with her. And life's a bit like that, isn't it? When you're a mom and you've got young children, well, even as they get older, it doesn't always change, does it? But we crave peace. Peace is hard. Peace doesn't come cheaply sometimes. And so whether it's in church, whether it's family events, we're actually going to go spend some time with our extended family. We don't spend a lot of time with them. And so they're different from us. And uh, there's a delight in that, and sometimes there's a challenge in that. In the workplace, we don't always have peace. One of the things Carol and I used to do is uh, help people make peace at work. And we would teach actually workshops, a workshop on conflict resolution. Actually, how you can resolve differences and struggle by understanding how what you do hurts others in the workplace. That requires a good degree of vulnerability, compassion, empathy, and a willingness to show care in the workplace. And we've seen it work. We, were, we, we taught that in one company, and uh, as a follow-up to that, the next year, they wanted to teach the same material. And it was really interesting, because there was a woman there who actually lived with a lot of dis-ease in her life, and uh, actually quite resistant to the message of faith because of a lot of pain in the church, sadly. And rather than take our material about resolving and reconciling, she presented material about managing conflict. We manage it by avoiding one another by tiptoeing around, by not talking about the difficult subjects. Essentially, peace, peace where there is no peace. Do you know where that comes from? It comes from the prophet Jeremiah. And he's lamenting the fact where the false prophets are saying, everything's fine, God is good, we're doing okay, it's all going to be fine. And he has a message of judgment that is coming upon the people of God. He says, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, where there is no peace. That's kind of nice, isn't it? This is a reality. And Jesus says, I have come to bring fire on the earth. How I wish it were already kindled. Now, we sometimes think of fire as the fire of God's passion, zeal, enthusiasm. I think Jesus was talking about that in this instance. In fact, if we go back in Luke's Gospel, remember we're reading Luke's Gospel, and we hear about the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. It's a fire of judgment. There'll be a burning up of the chaff. And Jesus says, I wish this were already kindled. Is he wishing for the judgment? Is there a tension here? Is he keen to burn up? I don't think Jesus is out to burn up. Remember, actually, we looked at this not so long ago. James and John, they're walking through Samaria. Remember, that's a part of Israel that uh, wasn't particularly liked by the southern kingdom. 
And because they resisted the message, James and John jump up, Lord, is this the time for the fire? Shall we call down fire from heaven? Just like Elijah had done in judgment. And Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you are of. But here he's talking about fire. And I wish it were already kindled. See, we can't have love without justice. Judgment is an expression of love, ultimately. He talks about, well, the next verse he says, I have a baptism to undergo. What's in the way is a baptism. And what constraint I am under until it is completed. Here is the Son of God under constraint. Just get this. This is the measuring part of God's love for us, that he constrains himself. He constrained himself to a fetus in a womb, to a child in a stable, to a boy in a family, to a crucified criminal. This is his baptism. This is not a water baptism. This is a baptism of suffering, the cup of suffering, the cross. And when previously, again, James and John, and but actually it was as much their mother wanted them to have the seat of privilege, to sit at your right and your left. And his response to them is, are you willing to undergo the baptism which I am to under- undertake? You see, the baptism is one of suffering to which we're all called. So Christ, is he the disturber of the peace? No, he's not. But his coming brings division. And it brings divisiveness. So my first point in this is that, I've got three Ds for you. We are to distance ourselves from divisiveness as a response to him. You know, whenever we are divisive, whenever we go to battle, whenever we fight, we generally do so from a place of we've lost sight of who we are and who we are in him and who we are together. Because inevitably when we begin to fight, we are fighting with ourselves. And it's coming out of the struggle very often within ourselves. You see, if we're living in this place of loving union with the creator and sustainer of all things, who suffered that we would not have to, why would we go to blows? Why would we, be dis- why would we fight? Why would we put down others? Why would we judge when we are the beneficiaries of mercy? But you see, we lose sight of that. Jesus' coming provokes a response. Now, <clears throat> It's not always the response he wants or is looking for. Very often we interpret this as there's a line you've got to choose. Are you going to belong to him and follow him or not? Those who do are this side, those who don't are that side. But I think it goes beyond that. It is not just about uh, a response of those who believe and those who don't. Jesus was a Jew. He, He grew up with an understanding of the Jewish scriptures. He bore the spirit who inspired their writing. And if we look back at the uh, prophet Micah, if I told you to find Micah in your books, that might take a little bit of finding. It's a smallish book in the uh, Minor Prophets. Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Sorry, just remember, years ago I kind of learned the books of the New Testament just by kind of <laughs> running through them many, many times. And so it helped me find them when I needed to. But Micah is a, is a really tough book because it's a word of judgment upon Judah that was coming upon them. 
And the prophet says this, son dishonors father, daughter rises against mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Therefore I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. I wonder if some of that imagery is what Jesus carried as he talked about this and of the infighting that would come upon even households with the judgment that was coming. You see, his whole life and message was a warning to Israel. We read from the prophet Isaiah about the, uh, the vineyard, you know, the people of Israel, this beautiful vineyard. God gave, dug it around and provided a nice hedge. Actually, I was thinking when that hedge was broken down, we had a hedge broken down. I hope that's not prophetic or symbolic of anything, but somebody drove through our hedge this week. Just a thought that occurred to me. Um, but the imagery of God has provided the land and bounty and plenty, he just needed his kids to get on and bear good fruit, and they failed. And Jesus is coming at a time when a great judgment is coming upon the people of God. And his message would not be listened to or heeded. And it would lead to the destruction. Some estimate over a million Jews were killed in the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in ultimately AD 70. It was kind of a three or four year process until eventually the walls were breached and the temple was pretty much destroyed and, um, and many were killed. And it was the end of the temple and temple worship. It had changed everything. But it was prophesied by Jesus. It's seen in the New Testament. And he would say, it's a, it's a failure to respond to me and to my word. Because peace doesn't come at any price. Peace only comes at a cost. For him it was the cross. And it was a willingness to allow evil to do its worst to him and respond not in kind but in grace. And that's costly. For us, peace comes when we embrace the Prince of Peace. And we choose the same way as the cross. It's a hard way because it's the same way that he walked. It comes when we choose to repent and turn away from the old pattern and old ways that we are used to living. The self-centered. And be broken over that and die to that way of living reject that whole identity and embrace a new identity as the new creation, the new man that God has created, the new family, the new people that actually Jesus said will even supersede to some extent your natural family because you're part of something so much bigger. But there's something to die to. There's something to be crucified in us. The passions and lusts of our old ways. Something that's in our very members, in our bones. And we never fully get away from it all until the work is fully completed in the presence of God in eternity. But for now, the invitation is to live under the protection of God and the grace of God while choosing to walk this way of the cross. It's hard stuff. And we, like many before us, struggle with it. It comes out in all sorts of things. Pride. We're the victim. You're the perpetrator. When we avoid reconciling, because you don't deserve it, you're not good enough. Thankful God didn't say that to us. When we judge one another, when we triangulate, and I wrote a bit about that last week, because 
it's really just the old man, the old person rising up and trying to feel better for him or herself. There's some harsh words in the scriptures about divisiveness. Paul says to Titus, warn a divisive person once, warn them a second time, after that have nothing to do with them. In Romans, Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. You see, there will be division. There will be resistance. There will be the rising up of the kind of the old man. And just like in the days of Jesus' walking upon the earth and the people of God living in the blessings of everything God had given, there was resistance to the way of God. There will be today, and there is in all of us. Just because I've embraced Christ doesn't mean I never resist. Therefore, I've got to learn to walk in humility and brokenness before you and him. Thankful for his grace. Trying not to defend myself. But Isaiah says there's no peace for the wicked because there's no Christ. There's no yielding. There's no submission of the will. And wherever we have divisiveness and conflict, it's because there's, there's no Christ. There's no yielding. There's no submission of the will. Because the sign of the Christ, the anointing, the Holy Spirit, is mutual submission. How can you fight someone you're submitted to? But we do. Secondly, discern the days we live in. Jesus said, you see a cloud rising in the west. So they're, they're in the Mediterranean, okay, Israel. If weather's coming from the west, it's coming from the sea, the Mediterranean. It's carrying moisture. We see the clouds, we know it's going to rain. If it comes from the southeast, it's coming up from the desert. So it's going to be hot and dry. We interpret those things. But he says you struggle to interpret the days now. The appearance on the, of the earth and the sky. How is it you don't know how to interpret this present time? And interestingly, he calls them hypocrites. Not foolish ones. It's like you're living in the benefit and blessing of, but you're failing to recognize and live according to the way and call. I wonder what times we're living in today. Are things different? Do we recognize the times we are in? Do we think about that? Do we have an eye to be, have integrity about and faithful to who we are because of Christ? As much as we love the blessing of the big thing, there is an incredible responsibility put upon us. We are God's plan A. There is no plan B. The creator, the healer, the savior, and the judge have chosen to invest himself in us, in our brokenness. Do you feel the world is broken? And yet still, in his love, God invests himself. What the New Testament tells us about the times we're living in is this. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. 
Man, I see too much of myself in that list. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. You see, it's the, it's the strategy of the enemy to lull us into disbelieving who we really are in the new creation, in the work that God is doing, and fall back into self and all of this stuff that flows from it. Remember, our divisiveness, our struggle, our, our battling with one another is because we've totally lost sight of who we are in him. And we're fighting for something that we don't need to fight for because we already have in him. And we've got to trust in him. Remember, we talked about that. We, we, we experience his love as we trust in him, not make it happen for him. And our call is to pursue Christ. It's to pursue the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. The way of the cross. The way of absorbing evil and responding with kindness. It's the way of the Holy Spirit because it's the godly way that you and I are incapable of living. But God knew that. And he didn't hold him from pouring out his spirit upon us. Because it's his love and acceptance that ultimately becomes transformative to us. But we've got to learn to walk in the new. Walk in the way. That's why Christians were called Christians, because they lived like the Christ, Jesus. We've got to become people recognized by the way in which we live. Our care for the poor, the sick. Somebody wrote a book, Larry Crabb, The Safest Place on Earth. The church should be the safest place on earth to be who I am without fear. It's often not. Because we've lost sight of who we are. Thirdly, deal with issues quickly. Deal with issues quickly. So distance ourselves from divisiveness, discern the days and the call, and deal with our issues. Because there will be issues, guaranteed. We are in, you know, the, the, the Christian life, the, this journey to God is a journey of becoming before it's doing. We kind of get so wrapped up in going off and doing so much stuff for God and impressing Him because that's kind of how we function very often. I, I need to impress. I need to show I'm worth something. Well, the cross has told us we're worth something. And now the invitation is to become that which we are. And that means being transformed. One degree of glory. This comes from the Spirit who is the Lord, Paul tells us in Corinthians. It comes from that submission, from that yieldedness, from that brokenness and humility. It comes from the very antithesis of that litany of things that actually are indicative of the end times. You see, it's, it's a way that shocks. It's a way that should stand out. It's a way that should attract many into the church because we yearn for the peace that it brings and the hope and life. But we've got to learn to deal with issues quickly. Because remember, we are, we are one. We are one in the Spirit. I believe in one baptism. One Lord, one Spirit, one body, one new man. We are in union with one another. So live like it. That's the invitation. And for that, we've got to learn to confess and forgive and comfort and care. We cannot expect perfection. God didn't. Why should we? It's unrealistic. You are not perfect. Neither am I. Why do we get so upset when imperfection raises its head? Very often we fail to discern our own imperfection. 
Now, Jesus, in a way, therefore, doesn't promise world peace, even though many people would like that. But there will be a world of peace one day. And he tells us to make peace with our adversaries. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, daughters, children. You know, we are most like our Heavenly Father when we're a peacemaker. Therefore, settle with your adversaries. Don't take it to court. Now, Paul, had in Corinth, he was aghast that the church were going to court. He says, don't you realize you're going to judge angels? You can't even judge amongst yourselves. You're fighting one another. This is a travesty. This is shocking. Read a book recently called The Church of Us and Them. Freedom from faith that feeds on making enemies. And the church through the ages has made enemies. We've made enemies over the way we dress, over the Bible we read, over the worship we practice, over the leadership we espouse and support, over what it means to be saved, over the Bible and its... I mean, goodness me, pick a thing, and we've made enemies over one another. Let's face it, we are broken and busted. Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. You see, he's not in the making enemy business. Jesus comes and reveals enemies. He doesn't make them. So let's not us be about that. So what would it be to be a people bent on loving our enemies, being kind to those who mistreat us and insult us, even persecute us, one of the saddest things in my own family is to see my mom and her sister live with divisiveness for most of their lives over being upset over money and inheritance. And it brought tremendous lack of peace, sickness. And it was probably a couple of months before my aunt died that they actually had a conversation together. And all the years were lost. And they're not bad people, either of them. And we can lose so many years, so much blessing, so much of what God wants to do, not just in us and for us, but for this world, if we live with this. And so to allow issues to stay, to fester for too long, it will rob us of our freedom and of our peace, and it will hinder our mission, cause God to be able to do less amongst us, the Holy Spirit to be less evident and present, and the ripple effect becomes significant. Reflecting back on the, 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 the community in Corinth, Paul said, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do it to your brothers and sisters. The wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. It kind of speaks for itself. But it's the way of the cross, you see. To be wronged is the way of the cross. Jesus was wronged. He was unjustly treated, tried, and crucified. But that was the purpose of God. And that's the way of Christ. Do not be deceived, Paul says. You were washed. 
you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You see, he's speaking to people like you and I who are believing that they are walking in the blessings of the gospel. And he says, you are defeated. Lord, have mercy on us. We're all capable of this. And that's why we need one another. That's why we're to warn one another. That's why we're to keep short accounts with one another. That's why we're to believe the best of one another and to pray for one another. But understand, the battle is real. It was real for Israel. It led to the destruction of the whole people, the loss of the land, the loss of the temple, and the expulsion for almost 2,000 years from something that God has said, this is permanent. How many generations? You see, everything's conditional, even grace. By grace you've been saved through faith. If you do not trust in it, you won't receive it, you won't walk in it. But God gives us the wherewithal and the means, I believe. And, and as I've kind of going to finish there. As I was praying into this passage and just reflecting upon the, the this, you know, this is a hard word, <laughs> and, and I'm leaving for a couple of weeks. And I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be blessed. I want you to know the favor of God that is in this place and the call that is upon this community for the sake of the wider community. Remember I said a little while ago, this church has a label of divisiveness. We've got to break that. But we won't break it if we keep walking in it. And it's a stronghold. But God is bigger than that. And as I prayed, the, the words of Joshua came to mind. I read the end of the book of Joshua, and Joshua's, Joshua's a man who loved worship, just like this community. He loved to be in the presence of the Lord. He loved to soak. And very often he'd go out to the tent of meeting with Moses, and they'd do their bit with God, and Moses would get on back to work. And Joshua, just, Joshua rather, is just left there in the presence. He loves, loves, loves the presence of God. He's a worshiper. And, uh, and eventually he gets the job to take the people into the promised land and to take the land and to bring freedom and the blessing. He doesn't do all the work. And he comes up against the struggle, and they're defeated in places because of sin in the camp, which God roots out. But at the end of the book of Joshua, it's this invitation is, this is a time, this is an opportunity, but you've got to leave the gods of the past. You've got to walk away from the strongholds that have held you. This is a new day. You've got to leave the gods of Egypt you have grown up shaped by rhythms and practices that are no longer to be followed because of what God is doing and the land that he's given you. And I, there's a real sense, I think, that there's a time to let go of some things of the past and to embrace some godly things for the future. And Joshua looks at them and said, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Who will join me? And I think that's the invitation. And I've talked a lot about households, what God wants to do through households. It will take, not divided households, but reconciled, both in terms of our, our personal home households and this household, household of God. And we've got to be a people who are together and for and with one another, linked arm in arm, believing for one another, in the spirit, in the new identity. And what is that new identity? Christ is our peace. He himself, he's made us both one. He's broken down the middle wall of separation. He's abolished in his flesh the enmity 
to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who were near and those who were far away. For we both, we all have access to the one God, the one Father, through the one Spirit that has been given. And, and where, there's be, where there's been a line and where there's been division, by the way, it's not tied to Canada or anything. It's tied to the broken human spirit. God has removed it. And two have become one. This is the revelation. This is the glory and the mystery once hidden but now revealed. Christ in us. We are one body. Joined by the Spirit. And we must walk in that. Let us bow our heads. And I, I just want you to, um, you know, this isn't pointing fingers anywhere. We are all culpable. And at different times have sadly given ourselves to the old. But the Lord looks to the heart and, and wants those who are broken and repenting and turn to Him in faith and say, Lord. Heal me, restore me, work in me, do a new thing through me. And I just want you in the quiet to lay your life before him as well. Lay your brokenness, own the struggle, confess the sin. Come to the one who is full of mercy. Come to your father who has longed for the returning prodigals, to embrace them, to clothe them, to put the ring upon the finger. upon your feet. The one who celebrates when we the son who was lost is found we have to celebrate. He doesn't look at the sin. He doesn't look at the waste. He delights in the return. So Lord we come in our brokenness. We acknowledge our sin and our selfish behavior. Forgive us for where we've believed the lie. And we've given in to that old energy, that old God. And we've sought to walk in our way and not yours. Lord, have mercy upon us. Pardon and deliver us. Cleanse us. And renew us by your spirit. And Lord, help us to walk in newness of life. For the glory of your name.